I had never been to a cross-country meet until my older children started running cross-country in middle school. Unlike so many other spectator sports, cross-country doesn't allow you to watch your runner or your player the entire time. You see them at the beginning, they take off running, go into the woods, and if there's an observation point later on during the race, you might see them then and cheer them on. But everyone, after the start, will often make their way to the finish line because it's the finish line where you can see, did your runners survive? Are they still running? How are they doing? How are they ranking compared to the other runners in the race? At that finish line, you'll often see those runners looking behind them, seeing who's behind, looking ahead, and they'll turn on the jets for those final few hundred feet that they're running to finish, hopefully with a great time and place in the race. I'm a part of something called the North American Mission Board Next Step Leader. I've talked about it a good bit we go through this together. It's video teaching. It's really good stuff. And in one of the recent online teachings for Next Step Leader, the teachers, Will and Dave, told the story about a friend of theirs that decided to run either a half or a full marathon. And they decided to go and show their supports to their friend. Now, they show up at this, you know, you're not going to actually be able to watch somebody run a full marathon. So they show up near the finish line, but it was crowded like always. So they went several hundred feet before the finish line. And they set up shop there waiting for their loved one to be running in the race. I get that feeling watching my kids run. And so here they see their friend from a distance. And they're shouting. They're celebrating. You can do it. Go, go, go. Calling out his name. And what does he do? He takes off running. He turns on the jets only to see his friends and realize he's still got a long way to go to the finish line. He just about did himself in by using up all of his energy and running to what was actually a false finish line. And the point of the teaching was this, we run to what we celebrate. We run toward what we celebrate. He saw his friends celebrating, he ran toward that. But the title of that teaching session online was this, Move the Finish Line. So many times we have the wrong finish line in our lives, even in the church. Our passage from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, in these verses, the Apostle Paul doesn't use the word finish line, but he talks about principles to describe for us what is the church's finish line. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. This is the last uh, part of chapter 1 that we'll cover in our study of Colossians. The church's finish line. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, 
God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's Word, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Before we get into the actual meat of the passage and bring application about the finish line for us, I've got to speak briefly toward verse 24, which is a rather confusing verse for many people. What is Paul talking about when he is referring to his own sufferings as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? The first thing we need to say is this, we need to be humble because we don't exactly know how Paul is filling up those afflictions. We don't know exactly how that works out. We just simply believe it's true because the Bible says it. But I can tell you what it doesn't mean. Paul is not saying that somehow on the cross, which was the ultimate place of the sufferings of Jesus, that somehow on the cross it was deficient what Christ was doing to pay the price for our sins. He is not saying that. No, Jesus said on the cross, paid in full. It is finished. He's not talking about the final suffering of Christ on that cross, that somehow Paul is completing that. No, he's, he's talking about something else, right? So when you come to a difficult passage in the Bible, what do you do? I believe the best practice is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. What else does the New Testament say about sharing in the sufferings of Jesus? Well, it says some things. In Philippians 3.10, it talks about, Paul says, I want to know you, Lord. I want to know the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 1.5 that we will share in the sufferings of Jesus. So when I come to a difficult verse, I seek to know what does the Bible say about this verse? What does the context of the passage say about this verse? And then I, I say, is my translation perhaps that I'm reading from hard to understand? Now, I prefer to use translations of the Bible that are very word for word. There's two real kind of theories of Bible translation into English and other languages. One is more word-for-word translations. The other is more what's called dynamic or thought-for-thought. Word-for-word is excellent. In fact, when I took classes in seminary and I had to translate the Greek and Hebrew back into English and give an account of that to my professors, you better believe that I would check it with a word-for-word translation, King James, NAS, ESV. But many times, those translations, though they are true to the actual text, what do they mean? 
Because if we don't know what it means, we can't apply it to our lives. So I looked at a very dynamic translation of the Bible, the New Living Translation for this verse. Look what it says. I am glad, Paul says, when I suffer for you in my body. For I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. That is a great translation of that verse. It doesn't change the meaning at all. It's accurate. It captures the essence of what Paul is saying. The sufferings of Christ are not finished. They continue on, not in his physical body, but in his body, the church. That's us. We continue in sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. So we should expect suffering as Christians and by God's grace learn to rejoice in our sufferings just as Paul does in verse 24. Now, let's move into the heart of our passage. Three lessons for us to realize as we seek to know and understand what is the church's finish line. Number one. A stewardship is given to us. A stewardship is given to us. Now, when we use the word stewardship, we, we immediately think about money, don't we? And that is true, but stewardship is so much more than just managing money. Stewardship, the idea in the Greek is it's an administration that we have. It's given to us. We refer to our presidents this way, right? When we look back in the history of, of our country, we'll talk about the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration. Now we're in the Biden administration. The, their administration is what those leaders do in their years that they are managing the United States of America. When we're born, we are given an administration. I could call you all by name and say, you know, it's the David administration, the Bruce administration. You've got an administration. You've, you've got something that you are managing and leveraging and leading in your life. I've said so many times these past six years as your pastor, Ephesians 2.10, that God has created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared before and for us to walk in. There is a life he wants us to live. There are things we're supposed to do. There's a stewardship that God has entrusted to each one of us. Look at Colossians 1.25. It's not my idea. The text says it. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. Paul had a stewardship. He was a minister of the church. And he was to minister to the Colossian church. But notice how Paul refers to this stewardship. And I quote, he says, it was given to me for you. The stewardship that God gives us is never for us. It's for those that we love and lead and influence. But also a stewardship, it, it's from God. So it's not even ours. We're simply have been entrusted with the people, with the task at hand. God has put these things in our lives. 
and entrusted us to glorify him by doing what he's called us to do with our stewardship, with our administration of our lives. Now, Paul's task was to be a missionary to the nations. He's, we know this from Acts chapter 9, his calling. And Paul's specific goal is at the end of verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. Every follower of Jesus has a stewardship, has a ministry. And that ministry that you will do with your life will flow out of the Holy Spirit, who the Bible says gives gifts to each according to his will. Your gifts, your background, your passions, your talents, your abilities, your location, all of those things are part of you finding your administration, finding your stewardship in life. But see, there's a false finish line. Now, now it's a good finish line that we'll often celebrate in the church. But I would argue it's not the ultimate finish line for us. We would say, come, gather with God's people. Grow in a group, a Sunday school class, a, a midweek Bible study. And then share, find a way to use your spiritual gifts in this body of believers. And those that have done that, we celebrate, and we should. But is there more? Is that the end all, be all, finish line for our lives? This became very real, illustrated to me in this Next Step Leader session a few weeks ago when Will and Dave, the online teachers, were talking about a church they were consulting with in Texas. And the pastor was wrestling with his own imagination about his church members and how they might be empowered and equipped and sent to make a real difference in the world. He said, there's a lady in our church, he was telling Will and Dave, who was consulting with him, a lady in our church who was very, very high up in AT&T. Even though her title wasn't pastor, the pastor said she really was like a pastor. High-level executive, folks would come into her office, and she would pray with them, share the gospel with them, counsel them. She was looked up to so greatly, and she was a member of this pastor's church. What an asset for this pastor in his church. And she was humble. She was willing to come and gather and connect in a group and then share. But then she was one of the greeters, a very outgoing, lovely lady, so talented, But it it dawned on that pastor, if the finish line for this lady in my church is just for her to come and to grow and and then to, to serve by greeting people. And by the way, we need greeters all the time. Greeters are wonderful. You are the face of the church. Critical. I'm not minimizing that. But that pastor, it just dawned on him, how am I sending her in her administration of ministry because uh, the ceiling is much higher than I'm setting for this church member. I think we have, in the, in the church, not just this church, in the church in the, in the West, we have just set the finish line way too close. We've raised the bar not high enough. 
In fact, years ago, Tom Rader wrote a great book called High Expectation Churches. And the churches that are growing, Rainer says, are the churches that have high expectations. We've lowered them. But we're to move that finish line, church, to where it needs to be that every single person in this room, every single person hearing this message, you have a calling, you have a purpose, you have works that you are to do to glorify God, and they go beyond just what you do here. I'll say it. Yes, let's grow this church. Let's make sure we're mature. Let's make sure we're serving. Let's have dynamic, excellent ministries. All of that is good, but that's not the finish line. The finish line is you running with passion and purpose and meaning toward the finish line that God has marked out for you. And it's our job as a church to help each other find it. Amen? Secondly, there is a mystery revealed in us. A mystery revealed in us us. Now, maybe you like murder mysteries or mystery shows or books, but mysteries are those things hidden to the masses. And when Paul used this word in verse 26, the Greek word translated mystery, what the readers in, in Colossae there would have thought about immediately would have been the extensive number of mystery religions in Asia Minor. In the first, second, third, uh, hundreds A.D., that was the peak of mystery religions in the Roman Empire. What was a mystery religion? Well, it was a secretive kind of cult that you would be a part of, be initiated into the group, and there you would receive spiritual instruction, have, have spiritual experiences not available to the public and those other public religions. These mystery religions, these insiders, that's what they would have thought about when Paul spoke of the word mystery. Paul has just said, I'm a minister to the church. I've received a stewardship from God to you to make the word of God fully known. Look at verse 26, 27. The mystery. So the word of God being fully known is the mystery hidden for ages and generations. But now... Revealed, not to just a small little group, but, but to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God has revealed a mystery that's been hidden for ages, Paul says. And he's revealed it to those who've put their hope in Jesus because those of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ, acknowledging we've sinned against God, putting our hope in what Christ did for us on the cross and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, we have hope because Jesus saves us by his grace through faith in him. We are now saints. It's not that small group of people recognized in the Catholic Church. It's not just that Paul was a saint. You are a saint in Christ if you trust in him. And so this mystery is now available to all of us. I mean, it's, it's scandalous, right? Because, I mean, the idea of mystery in their culture was this kind of secret little group of people. And now it's, it's being extended to the nations because God in his salvation history called out a special people for himself, Israel, and gave them revelation 
and call them into community, into covenant with him. And now he has expanded that, Paul says, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the fulfillment of all the covenants, or Jesus in us. God takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh, Ezekiel, that we will all know the Lord because God's put himself in us. It's not just a mystery revealed to us, it's a mystery revealed in us. In John 14, Jesus is giving final instruction to his disciples before he will leave them. And he talks about a helper. He says, I am going to leave you, but I'm I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to give someone to you, a helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Later in that conversation, John 14, he says this, verse 23, if anyone, John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, in John 17, he prays for unity and he talks about God, unite your church as I The Son, you, the Father, the Spirit, we're all one. Unify your church just as we are all unified. Father, Son, Spirit, we will come and make our home with that person who knows me and loves me. And so it is correct to say that God comes to live in the heart of the believer. It's okay to say, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was a kid, right? We know specifically in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is the one who comes in. He is the the active presence of God, fully God, active in this world. Literally, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. But because Father, Son, Spirit are the same, Christ is in us right now. And that's powerful. In fact, if we're simply giving a finish line to our church members do this, do that, do this, try your best, come back next week, we'll try to help you some more. That's not the right finish line. We need to be reminding each other that there is glory in us, the hope of glory that Jesus lives in me and that supernatural things can happen because Jesus is alive in me and in you. That is the finish line to encourage us, to help us. He's the helper that gives us the strength to do the ministry, to run the race toward the finish line that God has called us to do. There is a mystery revealed in us. There's a stewardship given to us. But third, what is the finish line? Maturity is the finish line for the church. I think I may have said this before, but I was talking to my dad one day about, you know, becoming a man. My dad says, you don't become a man until you're 25. Now, now where he pulled 25, I don't know where he got the age 25, right? Our daughter was just saying the other day, I'm about to be 18, a legal adult. We're like, I'm like, honey, I mean, I know legally, and she's a very mature young lady, right? I'll be careful how I say this in the next hour because she'll be sitting right there. (laughs) But I mean, but the goal is right, maturity, right, in life. I mean, we grow toward maturity. So what is the finish line for the church? 
I'm going to argue that it's maturity in these verses. The finish line, I'm speaking now to preachers and ministers. The finish line is not more people in our churches. I want to have more and more people in the body. I want that, right? But that's not the finish line. The finish line is not the most vibrant ministries, though we should want to do all things with excellence. The finish line is not how much money we take in, how we manage it, how we use it to extend the kingdom and missions and ministry. The finish line is not even the number of baptisms, as important as it is to see people come to know Jesus Christ and identify with this church and grow as disciples. The finish line is spiritual maturity. We know this. In Romans 8, 29, it's so clear. The Bible says that God has predestined us with a purpose before the foundation of the world that we might become like Jesus, to be conformed into the image of his Son. Romans 8, 29, Paul has just told us about the hope of glory, Jesus Christ. Verse 27, look at verses 28, 29. Him, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Him, we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. The finish line for Paul, the finish line for us is this, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what's Paul's strategy? What are our tactics? Paul tells us. First, him we proclaim. There is no spiritual maturity apart from Jesus, apart from the gospel. A lot of folks think that extensive knowledge of the Bible means a person is spiritually mature, not necessarily. We do know that we're to be fed the meat of the Word of God. We will grow when we read our Bibles and meditate upon the Word of God. Yes, we will. But there was a group of people in the time of Jesus that knew their Old Testament better than anybody else, but they rejected by and large Jesus. Even Jesus says in John's Gospel to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures. You know the scriptures, but they point to me and you reject me. It's possible to have extensive knowledge of the Bible, yet not know Jesus. Paul did not know Jesus until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. John Wesley, the great preacher of the Methodist church did not know Jesus and he was trained in the greatest theological schools at the time in England yet he did not know Jesus Christ until he had an encounter with Jesus and he proclaimed Jesus from then on him we proclaim if there is ever a preacher in this church who does not proclaim Jesus get rid of him him we proclaim He is the one. Secondly, what's our tactics to present everyone mature in Jesus? We're to teach everyone and warn everyone with all wisdom. Now, Jesus gives his great commission, Matthew 28, to teach, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. Teaching is a critical component 
of being mature. But your greatest teacher, the teachers in your life, whether it was a coach, a school teacher, a boss, those greatest teachers somehow transcended the transfer of knowledge and inspired you, didn't they? They touched your heart somehow. Teaching is beyond just information transfer. It is training. It is equipping. It takes great wisdom to do this, but also to warn. Warn people. Pastors need to be warning people with all wisdom. When you have a little child and they see the hot stove eye and they reach their hand, you slap it. No, don't touch that. You warn them or to burn them, right? If they're looking you know, off a mountain or a hill and they're going to step, you warn, don't step off that. You'll fall. We have to constantly warn those who are immature. And guys, there's so much garbage out there online, on social media, that I'm, I, we need to have discernment. And a warning as believers. So we teach, tell you what to do and how to do it. We model it, we show it, and then we are to warn and say, don't do that. And we can often warn by experience. Guess what? I did that when I was your age and it hurt me. And we speak generations to each other in the body of Christ. So critical. So we proclaim Christ, we teach, we warn. Third, we must remember this message is for all people. Three times Paul uses the word everyone. We teach everyone. We warn everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The finish line is not where it needs to be if we've just set it up that we look inwardly, we make sure that we're serving, we're growing, we're okay. There is a world around us. Paul says everyone needs to be mature in Christ. That includes the Taliban in Afghanistan. That includes every atheist on this planet. That, in, that, that involves every single person who thinks they're good enough to go to heaven. Every single person who was raised in the church but has not continued in the faith because maybe they didn't have a genuine conversion experience. It involves every person who's been made mature in Christ. The finish line is everyone. We're not an exclusive club. Everyone mature in Christ. Fourth, and lastly, it will take tremendous effort. For us to achieve spiritual maturity and for us to produce maturity in the lives of others. Paul uses two words here in the Greek. He says, I toil, I struggle. The Greek meaning of these words are to work so hard with strenuous labor that you're just, to use our phrase, you're worn to slap out. You're just exhausted because how hard you have worked and toiled. That's the idea in the Greek. Yet Paul is not doing it in his own strength. He says, I'm toiling. I'm struggling toward this finish line that everyone is mature in Christ and I'm doing it with the energy that Jesus powerfully works within me. And once again, if I just say, work hard, work hard, do your job as a church, I'm not talking about the one working in us, I'm setting the false finish line for you as your pastor. 
But too many times we just take it all in, don't we? And we don't get serious about this work God's called us to do. It is a battle. It is a fight. I believe our problem is not that we're working too hard. I think our problem as a church is that we're lazy. We're lazy. Not the church, not just the church in the West. We're just lazy, distracted, focused on other things, aren't committed. No one can say the Apostle Paul was not committed to the gospel, to the grace of God. He did not preach works-based salvation, but the man worked harder than anybody else with the power that Christ gave him. Oh, church, let us put our hand to the plow and do this work. Let us wear ourselves out for the glory of God to build his church, to make everyone complete in Christ. Father, I pray right now that we would just know that you've got a calling for our lives. You've given us a stewardship. Help us to be good managers, God, of what you've given us. God, you have given us a mystery that's now revealed in us, Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us. We have the power of the living God in our veins, in our hearts. And God, there's a finish line. Would you grow me, God? Grow me in my leadership. Grow me in my walk with you as a husband, as a father, as, a, as an evangelist, God. Grow us into maturity. But God, we're to grow everyone around us. Help us to take this message to make the word of God fully known to everyone around us. God, let us go out. Let us work diligently, tirelessly, this work you've given us to do, but not in our own strength, God. Not so we fall down exhausted, but no, because we, those of us understand that we shall wait upon the Lord who shall renew our strength. God, give us the strength to run the race. Let this church set the right finish line. Let us finish the race well as your body of believers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand now as we sing? We need today to respond as God is calling us as his people. I'll be here to receive you. If, if you want to join this church, if you want to say, Kate, you talked about Christ in, in us. I want to know what it means to have Jesus Christ living in me. That's the gospel. We have great assurance. Jesus Christ is ours. Let's sing. If you want to come forward, this altar is open. I'll be here to receive you. God bless you. Let's worship him right now together. Blessed assurance.